My earnest prayer for us this morning is that um, as it has already been, this last hour together would be a defining moment for PDI. There come in the uh, history of institutions and denominations and families and individual lives and schools moments that you look back on in decades to come and say there was a defining moment. I pointed to some of them in my own life last night and uh, it may be that It may be that it would, it would not only be true for you, but for me as well, that uh, Celebration East 99 would be one of those moments that I would look back on for decisive work of God in my life. So thank you for being part of that. But if I can see my notes here, I will try to deliver on what I think the Lord has given me. And he, he put this on my heart quite a long time ago for you. And uh, I hope you'll receive it. CJ has uh, graciously received it in measure. When I mentioned what I wanted to talk about today, I was amazed at how many people came up to me and handed me notes or with tears said, uh, we've been praying for this for four years or longer. One man left and said, I'll be gathering my church to pray for this hour because I can't be here. And I think it's a defining moment for them. So I want to talk about world evangelization. I want to talk about world missions. I want to talk about those 500 young people that were standing here last night doing business with God and what the future should hold for you. Whether you go, whether you're... There are only three possibilities in the world for missions. Goers, senders, and disobedient. There are only three possibilities. Goers, senders, and disobedient. So you're not unincluded in this issue. Frankly, I do believe that God is at work in this globe to muster about 200,000 young people, perhaps the first 10,000 of which will die by the artillery on the first wave. Have you ever thought about what it costs to do battle for Israel in the Old Testament. Have you ever put yourself into a battle of 180,000 people, 30,000 of whom die on the first day? Have you ever imagined? There are no bullets flying here. This is all hacking. What do you think those men who were told by their commander, you go first? 
You got 180,000 here with swords and machetes and spears. You got 180,000 or 200,000 here with swords and machetes and skin. And they meet like this. What did those people on the front lines think? They thought, we die. They live and maybe they win. We die. And they went. Now God has not yet raised up a generation like that. But he is. I do believe he is. And everywhere I go, if they will let me, I am on a recruitment mission to say, will you be a part of these two or three hundred thousand people that will finish the Great Commission to Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists mainly? They do not want you to come. And they have no hesitancies to hack you to pieces in some places. You will lose your hands and feet. It will take a massive work from Almighty God to reorient the whole mindset of American Christianity to finish this. And if God doesn't do it here, we get passed over and he'll do it with South American Christians. Or he'll do it with African Christians. Or he'll do it with Filipino Christians. Or probably he'll do it with Korean Christians. Because there are young people who are not fixated on their belly buttons and on their music and on their dresses and on their sandals and on their tan. I tell you, there is one question God Almighty will not ask at the judgment. Did you get a good tan? And there are many such questions that we are consumed with as summer comes, which will not be on his list at the judgment, young people or older people. Now, a movement of missions in PDI, Baptist General Conference that I come from, and all over evangelicalism and the poor, poor mainline Protestant Catholic Church, the movement of missions is probably not going to happen by a new focus on the world. It's going to happen by a new focus on God. Young people don't get excited about organizations today. You tout your organization, your agency, or your denomination. They're not moved by that. Nor do I think they should be. Rather, Psalm 910 may get at it. Those who know thy name put their trust in thee. Knowing the name of God. Knowing the name of God, he says, causes young people to put their trust not in their looks, not in whether they're tall or short or have the right kind of hair or complexion or build. But in God. And when you put your trust in God, you start taking risks 
for God. And when you start taking risks for God, you start letting things go that all your peers think you've got to have in order to be significant because you have a totally different treasure that you are living for. And oh, I think this generation, call them anything. How many earrings do you have to have to be a buster? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This generation is hungry for something that's worth living and dying for, that you get up early for, you stay up late for, you lay down your life for. And I'll tell you, it isn't in earrings, it isn't in black clothes, or no clothes, it isn't in anything like that. It is in God alone. And God's going to make that plain to hundreds of thousands of young people around the world until there are enough who are willing to assume their position on the front Phalanx for Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and China and North Korea and Cuba and Indonesia, Pakistan, North India, Nepal, Vietnam, Laos, and die. Because the blood of the martyrs is mighty in the bringing down of strongholds. They will watch it from the throne. You remember what they said under the throne? How long, O Lord? How long? These are the martyrs crying out in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord? How long until you vindicate our blood? And do you remember the answer that the Lord gave them? He put robes upon them. And he said, be quiet and patient for the full number of those of your brothers who are appointed to die is not yet complete. Will you be among the number? There's a number. And the Great Commission will not be finished until that number is complete. And all the souls that die in the cause, and they're dying at the rate of about 150,000 a year, according to David Barrett. Some years 200,000, some years less. People dying for their Christian faith around the world. We are oblivious in the Disneyland of America where we play, 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 play what real Christianity costs around this world. So I want to take as my text one simple phrase from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's my text. Hallowed be thy name. So I want to ask this. Number one, what is the name? Number two, what does it mean to hallow it? And number three, when you pray it, for whom are you praying? That's my message. What's the name? What do you mean? Let it be hallowed. And when you say it, for whom are you praying? Let's take the name first. Oh, I have a picture in my mind. Let me sketch it for you. I wish I could... 
I wish I could dramatize this, but it is so big, nobody can dramatize this picture. But you might be able to see it in your mind's eye. Picture an ocean. It's bigger than the Pacific Ocean. Has no end. In it, there is an iceberg floating called the knowledge of God. Above the water, you may see 10%, right? Isn't that the way it works with an iceberg, roughly? 10% is above the water in your little skiff you're looking at this. That's revealed in this book. 10% is above the water of the knowledge of God. This iceberg floating in this sea stretches from the water into the sky as far as you can see and beyond infinitely. That's how much is revealed here. You will never get to the top or the bottom of this book and what it has to teach you about God. That's why I am only modestly enamored by the gift of prophecy. Modestly. Not a cessationist, but just modestly enamored. Because the authoritative, revealed, inspired, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word of God has barely been touched by the church. Barely been understood. What, what, what is the length of your devotions in the morning? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Thirty minutes? What a terrain! What a terrain! What a terrain! What a height of revelation is in this book. It stretches like an iceberg above the sea of mystery, knowable, knowable, climbable, infinitely, and we will climb it forever. And then there is God buried beneath the sea of mystery, vastly deeper than a finite mind could ever fathom. Now, that's my picture of the knowledge of God, lest you think that the next ten minutes of this sermon are comprehensive. I'm just going to try to climb maybe 30 feet onto this iceberg with you and point to seven names of God so that when you pray, hallowed be thy name, there'll be some content in your head and in your heart. Number one, God said to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. That is his name. I am who I am. Moses says, who shall I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am who I am. Now, we could spend an hour on that name. Of course, we could spend years on each of these names. But we'll spend just a minute or two on each of these names. I am who I am simply means, at least, God absolutely is. That's where I began my messages yesterday. That's where I'm going to end today. God absolutely is. You see, before anything else was, he was. I tell you, the little children ask the hardest questions, do they not? And they ask, where did he come from? 
How did he get to be the way he is? When did he grow up? Who taught him to be righteous and holy and good and faithful and kind and merciful? And who made him mighty and wise and eternal? And there are no answers to those questions. And you have to say to a little child, you see, God never had a beginning. He always was. Can you imagine such a thing? God, that little child cannot get over it. Every child should say, I can't believe it. He never had a beginning. You mean all these qualities we sing about on these screens just are? They didn't get built into him by some good parenting. He didn't read his Bible and pray. No. Absolute reality. He is. I am who I am. This is the ultimate reality. If you can get your arms around this, you can get your arms around anything. And listen, if somebody comes along and says, I think absolute reality is a gas. Just a amorphous blob. And then there was a great bang. You could say, fine, that's, that's possible. But listen, that's, that's an awesome commitment you're making. What's your evidence for that it was gas and not person? What is your argument that it was blob and not person? What arguments would you give? You can't get behind it to any causes that would make it be gas or make it be person. It either is gas or it is person. And there's no reason behind it to make it that way. And so there's no reason you should believe them when they say that. It was a blob. You say, excuse me, uh, do you know someone behind it that told you that? That it was a blob or that it was gas? Where are you getting that? Were you there? And well, no, but, but what? But what? Tell me, tell me about this blob that you are so confident was the beginning of it all. There's no reason. It's an absolute wash at this point. 50-50, person or blob. Then you have to ask, does the world that you see, the love that you feel, the conscience in your heart, the order in the universe, scream blob or person. I, I frankly have many struggles in my life with faith. That's not one of them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if you're struggling with belief in God as a person, as the absolute reality, I'm not able to identify, frankly. I, I know some do, and, but I have been spared that one. Because you could put a bullet to my head right now and say, try to try not to believe in God. And I'd say, shoot me, I can't. I just, it's, it's out of the question. There's no way for me to conceive of ultimate reality that is not person. Number two, not only is he, but Exodus 33:19 says, I will proclaim before you my name. 
my name. And here's the name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God's name is absolute freedom to do as he pleases. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That is my name. So the first name is I am, and the second name is I am free to do as I please. And when I treat a person away, I treat them that way because I choose to treat them that way. And if you try to pursue to the bottom of why I do what I do, there will be no bottom other than my will. I am who I am. I do what I do. That's God. Third, Exodus 6 verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. So that's his third name. God Almighty, not only is he, not only is he free, he is almighty. He cannot be thwarted in any of those willings that he has. And therefore, he's omnipotent. And that is the guarantee of his faithfulness in our lives. Do not let the controversy surrounding the sovereignty of God rob you from the preciousness of the truth of the doctrine that it undergirds everything we hope in. And he can pull it off because he is God. Number four, Exodus 34, six and seven. He comes down out and he declares his name on Mount Sinai. And it goes like this. Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the revelation of his name. So mercy, 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 steadfast love, forgiveness is his name. So he is, he's free, he's omnipotent, and he's merciful. That is his name. Number five, Revelation 21.6. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. We've seen the beginning. Now he declares, I'm the end. Now think about this. This means that you, every person in this room, everybody, everybody you know on the street, everybody you know at your schools, everybody you know at your office had a beginning and that beginning was God. My first grandchild was born eight days ago. I wrote an open letter to my first grandchild for all the people in our church. And I said, Millie, 10 months ago, you were not. You absolutely were not. I don't believe in any form of reincarnation. You absolutely had no existence 10 months ago. And today, you are. And you will never cease to be. I have a portion in your body. I have no portion in your soul. God made your soul somewhere in August of 98. By my computation. God did that. And now that soul, Millie Amia Piper, lives forever. 
You got two choices, Millie. Either God will be your Omega or hell will be your Omega. Your only two choices. Know this. The name of God is Alpha. He brought her into being. And Omega. He will be her end. Or he will assign her end. And that's true of every person. All the planets. All the galaxies. All the universe. That's his name. Number six. To Isaiah in chapter 57, verse 15, he says, I am the high and lofty one whose name is holy. Oh, how often we sing of holiness and God is holy. We need teaching on holiness because it's a word we use in very many hymns and songs. And I don't think there are very many Christians who could define the holiness of God. So let me try in two minutes to unpack it for you. Everybody knows probably that the word means to set apart. But think about that for a moment. When something is rare, stamps, beetles, Coke bottles, we set them apart in collections, put them on mantles, under glass, and they become valuable. You can trade a certain Coke bottle for $10,000. Certain stamps, certain rare bug collections. You can trade them for $10,000. They're valuable. To set something apart as rare is to value it and to say it's got value. Now... If there is a stone or a stamp that's one of a kind, then you really set it apart. You put it in the safe. Way separate, way high. Because it is supremely valuable within its class. Then, if there happens to be a being who has no class but his own, And everything is dependent on him, and he is absolutely sui generis in a class by himself, then he is infinitely valuable, infinitely set apart, infinitely distinct and unlike his creation, which is totally other. And I think that's what holiness is. God is holy. His being and his Righteousness and his purity and his love and his power and his justice and his wisdom and his goodness are all so distinct they are in a class by themselves and of infinite value and therefore he is set apart from us as high and lifted up and lofty and holy, holy in the sense of the gold in Fort Knox and they big They build big brick walls and they put spiral, spiked wire around it so that nobody can get at this valuable gold on which our economy rests. And God is a million times more valuable and to be set apart with wire and with walls 
lest he be besmirched by the contamination of his fallen creation. Which throws into the most stark relief the doctrine and the reality of the incarnation. Does it not? That he would leave that and say, I will be dirty. And I will be defiled. And I will be mocked and spit upon. And my beard plucked out. So that this gap, this infinite gap between holiness with all of its barbed wire and all of its thick walls and all of its infinite height may be trends. I've lost the verb. Give me a verb. I want to get over this. Transversed. Transversed by sinners so that we can live there with him forever. He's holy. Last one, number seven. On Mount Sinai, God said, Exodus 34, 14, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. That means that because of his holiness and because of his existence and because of his freedom and because of his mercy and because of his omnipotence, he deserves your affection and he is jealous when you give it to another. When you take your heart and you give it to basketball, when you take your heart and you give it to computers, when you take your heart and you give it to a girlfriend or sex, when you take your heart and you give it to your career, when you take your heart and you give it to clothes, when you take your heart and you give it to a club or a hobby, and it's clear to everyone that's more precious to you than your God. He is jealous. He burns with jealousy. He is a jealous God. That's the tip of the iceberg that I see up to the clouds that are clouding my little finite mind this morning. Now here is an inference. That I will draw out from this. That's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. That this name be hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Now think about just the sheer implication of this for a moment. God is telling you this morning... To pray to him who is infinitely jealous for his name that you should ask him to see to it that his name be hallowed. That's very strange. He's already infinitely engaged in the upholding of the glory of his name. That's what jealousy means. Now, this implication is that prayer is awesome. That God would say to you, the likes of you and me, engage with me. 
engage with me in the bringing about of what is most burning on my heart, namely the hallowing of my name in the world. Engage with me in that. Lay hold on me for that. Pursue me for that. Ask me for that. And if you were to say, why? 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 Why doesn't he just do it? If he's so eager to do it, why doesn't he just do it? Why does he tell me to tell him to do it? And all I know to say is with Pascal, prayer is God's gracious gift of secondary causality. Does that help? Not much. But I don't know what to say. All I know is, this is an awesome calling. If the universe is created to magnify the name of God and see to it that it's hallowed in the world, and God comes to this fallen creation and says, now, engage with me to get that done. Call upon me to do that. Tell me to do that. Pray to me to do that. It's my first petition in the Lord's Prayer. I told my son to teach you to do that, first of all, in praying. Come to me, first of all, and say, do it, do it, do it. I don't know why. All I know is, that's a high calling. And I want to be there when he says, do it. I want to pray that way. Let me give you an analogy in the Bible of the same mystery of prayer. Matthew 9, 38. Have you ever thought about the strangeness of this text where it says, Jesus is talking, he looks, he sees the people like sheep without a shepherd, and he says, pray the Lord of the harvest. So Jesus says to to the disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. To go out and get his name hallowed. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Have you ever thought about how strange that is? Now the Lord of the harvest is the owner of the farm. Alright? You got a farm and you got some grain that is ripening in Saudi Arabia or Uzbekistan or Indonesia or Papua New Guinea or North Korea. Some grain is ripening. He owns a farm. Now the owner of the farm knows farming. The slave hands, they don't know much. They live out on the edge and they do what they're told. And the the son of the farmer, the owner of the farm, genius in farming, total power to bring about harvest when he pleases, the son of the farmer goes out on the edge of the plantation, opens the door of the slave quarters, and he says, uh, would you please go to my father and tell him we need more hands? And you say, he knows we need more hands. He's the farmer. He knows farming. We do what we're told. And the son says, go to my father and tell him you want more hands. You don't need to understand this. I'm telling you, my father sent me here to tell you to come to him to ask for more hands. And you just scratch your head and say, all right. Mr. Farmer, owner of the universe, knower of all things, controller of all persons, would you please send out more farmers? Hands on the, I mean hands. 
to bring in your harvest? That's very strange. Prayer is strange. Prayer is strange. And it's gloriously strange. Oh, PDI, pray the Lord of the harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest. In 1983, God came down on my church, me and my wife and many others. Came down on Tom Steller, my associate, in the middle of the night with a Michael Card song. Woke him up. And he wept for hours as he listened to Michael Card connecting the glory of God and nations. He's never been the same since. And he got a new job called Associate for Missions at our church, which he has to this day now. 13 years, 16 years later, whenever. Me and Noel, we said, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And the little thing we said, we can do this. Every night when we bow and pray like we do at our bedside, we can say these words. Lord of the harvest, send forth laborers from Bethlehem. Every day in 1983. Every day we prayed that prayer. And God began a new work in 1984. And he will begin a new work in your churches. Just say the simple words. Father, send out laborers. Father, you told us to say it. I don't know why you told us to say it. You know the laborers are needed. You know how to win the world. But you told me to pray it. I'm going to pray it. And maybe in the praying, you'll figure out why he did it that way. There are a couple of things I learned from pondering about that. And one is that prayer does not move God to do what he's disinclined to do. It does It simply gets us in on what he promises to do and what he's going to do. And if you don't get in on it, you know what he's going to do. He's going to put the prayers in the saints in Argentina and Brazil. And they will get in on it and you'll be passed over and you will lose. But he'll get it done. The second observation I make is that prayer is God's way of bringing our priorities into line with his priorities. God wills to make great things the consequences of your prayers when your prayers are in line with his purposes. God wills to make great consequences the results of your prayers when your prayers are in line with his global purposes, which I'm trying to make plain from the first petition of the Lord's Prayer this morning. So that's my first observation. What is the name? Now I shift over to what is it to hallow this name? What does it mean to hallow the name? The word hallow, very interesting, e, interestingly, is the Greek word hagiadzo, which is translated almost everywhere, sanctify. Sanctify. Sanctified be thy name is the literal translation. Hallowed is an old-fashioned King James' word that nobody dares to change because it's in the Lord's Prayer. Which is okay, I'm glad we can pray the Lord's Prayer corporately. But you need to know that it is hagiadzo, sanctified, which creates a problem because sanctified when it's used towards us means make us holy. Get sin out of our lives. But when you sanctify God, it means declare that he's holy. Make it known that he's holy. Set him apart in his barbed wire as holy. That's what sanctified means. Treat him as holy. Now, what I did to try to unpack this from my own mind and soul was to search the Bible for places 
where the word hagiadzo, sanctify, is used toward God. There are not many. I could only find four. In all the Bible, I could only find four places. There may be more, and I missed them, but I could find four places where we are to hagiadzo God. Not him, us, but we, him. Now, let me just read these to you, and I think what they'll do is unpack for you what you ought to mean when you pray the prayer, hallowed be thy name, let your name be hallowed. What do you mean? What do you mean, young people, when you say, hallowed be thy name? Or do you just throw the word away, hallowed? Oh, that's like Halloween. I guess it means put a a lantern on his head or something. Put a witch in the window. I mean, no, 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 no. Let's let's find out what the Bible means by hallow. Numbers 20, verse 12. Wilderness wanderings, people are thirsty, there's no water. God says, Moses, speak to the rock. Speak. And he doesn't speak in a moment of anger. But the people takes his rod, hits the rock. God in his incredible mercy, isn't it good that God will accept all kinds of crazy prayers? Like, do, do it. He said, ah, okay, I'll do it, but you're not going in the promised land. God is very merciful. He's very merciful. He should have struck him dead. Here's what he said to him. Because you did not believe in me to sanctify me, hallow me. In the eyes of the people. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I gave them. From which I infer sanctify means believe in. I'll read it carefully. Because you did not believe in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the people, therefore... You will not bring them into the promised land. My first interpretation of the word hallow is, believed be your name. So when I say, hallowed be your name, I mean, let your name be trusted. Secondly, Isaiah 8.12. God speaks to Isaiah, warns him not to be like other people. Or the people of Israel. And here's what he says. Do not call conspiracy what this people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall sanctify. Him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Now, how would you interpret hallow from that verse? I would say... To hallow the name of God means to contemplate all the things that ordinary people are afraid of. And then to contemplate the fear of God. And to prefer dis... I'm going to say it right here now. To prefer not bringing the displeasure of God upon you by fearing what man fears, but rather fearing bringing the displeasure of God upon you. I didn't say that very well, but maybe you got it. Here's you got what people are afraid of. And there you got God saying, don't fear that, fear me. And you look back and you forth. You will hallow him if you say, God, 
I fear you. I don't fear that. And I tell you, that'll make a missionary in a hurry. That'll take you to a hard place. That'll make you a risk-taking person. If you say, I fear one being alone and nobody else. Young people, that's something to pursue. I fear one being. And it isn't anybody on planet Earth. To be able to stand in a courtroom in Afghanistan, having been arrested for illegally preaching the gospel and being threatened with 10 years or something worse by maiming and say, I fear one person, Jesus Christ, my Lord, whom I will not dishonor, but only hallow in this moment. By not fearing you. Does not your heart burn within you. To be such a person. The third meaning of hallow. Is from Leviticus 22.31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my name, my holy name, but I will be hallowed. Obeyed be your name is what we mean when we say hallowed be your name. Obeyed be your name. Obeyed be your commandments. Fourthly, lastly, Leviticus 10.3. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. I will show myself holy among those who are near me and before all the people I will be glorified. So the parallel there makes me think that to show myself holy, that is hallowed, and to be glorified are the same. So here's my interpretation then of the phrase, the prayer, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy being. Hallowed be thy mercy. Hallowed be thy sovereignty. Hallowed be thy great wisdom. Hallowed be thy self. What I mean is, believed be your word. Feared be your displeasure. Obeyed be your commandments. And glorified be yourself. That's what I mean when I pray the Lord's Prayer. So, what we do when we pray the Lord's Prayer is we lift up our hearts and we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We mean, Father, go to work now. Go to work in the hearts I'll be back in just a minute to tell you whose hearts. Go to, go to work in the hearts so that they'll believe on you, so that they'll fear you, so that they'll obey you, and so that they will glorify you in all of your panorama called your name. That's what we're praying. Now the last question this morning. For whom are you praying? Who do you pray for when you pray with Jesus? Hallowed be thy name. Now, the answer to that is not simple. 
It is complex, or at least duplex. Because I believe for every petition in the Lord's Prayer, there is a personal, private, individual petition in it and a global petition in it. And I want to show you why I think that by letting the next two petitions inform the way I interpret the first petition. Hallowed be thy name. Next petition. Lord, thy kingdom come. Let it come. Bring it. Bring it. Bring it. Oh, God. Next petition. Thy will be done on earth as the angels do it today in heaven. Now, those two petitions, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, inform who is being prayed for in hallowed be thy name. Because you can go elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in the Gospels to ask Jesus, what do you mean your kingdom come? What do you mean your kingdom? What do you mean your will be done on earth? What do you mean? And he'll answer you. Let me give you a couple of answers. Take them one at a time. In uh, Matthew 12, 28, it, it says, um, no, Matthew 6, 33, lost my place here. Matthew 6, 33, come to the end of that section on anxiety, and he says, Seek the kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you. Now, from that I take, seeking the kingdom is a lot like praying that the kingdom come, only it's very personal. Seek the kingdom means seek the rule of God in your life. Seek that he would come as king in your life. Seek that he would exercise his authority over your life and banish sin out of your life. And so there's this personal dimension. But the kingdom is more than personal, and you see... In Luke 22:18 at the Lord's Supper, something like this. Jesus says, from now on, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So in a sense, the kingdom of God had come in Jesus and its personal dimension was being applied in the lives of the apostles. But now he says, I'm not going to drink with you again until the kingdom of God comes. So the kingdom of God is this global reality, which will be extensive over whole over the whole world. And that's what we're praying to come. Therefore, I move up to the first petition and I say, when he says, hallowed be thy name, surely he doesn't mean anything smaller than thy kingdom come. And so what we're praying for is, oh God, grant that in all the peoples of the world, your name would be hallowed. It is a missionary prayer. It's a prayer for the nations. It's a prayer for the people groups that are moving to Pittsburgh and moving to Washington. My neighborhood in the last three years has been absolutely turned upside down with guess who? Somalis. And they're all Muslims. So don't misunderstand me this morning. Let me clarify something very clear here about missions. And I hope you'll begin to read about these things. Read the Perspectives book. Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. Probably the most important single volume on missions in print today. With articles by everybody about everything. 
And in that, learn this. Missions is not a geographical issue mainly. It is a cultural issue mainly. Meaning this. To move from here to China, or let's say from here to Nigeria, is not necessarily to do missions. In the Pauline way, the Paul way of talking about it. Because there is a massive, vibrant church in Nigeria. Not every people group in Nigeria, mind you, but in many people groups in Nigeria. If you go to work for the church in Nigeria to do evangelism, that is not world missions. The way Paul talks about it. Now, I know that jars some of you, and I know it uses the terminology a little differently than the way most people use it. But I want to make a biblical case for that, and it comes from Romans 15, and it goes like this. If you read Romans 15, which is Paul's statement about his own call into missions, his own ambition for missions, he said in verse 20, Listen to this amazing statement. Picture your geography first. Can you picture before your mind's eye the Mediterranean world? You got it? You got Spain over here at the bottom, and then it branches across. You got the boot of Italy. You got Greece. You got Cyprus in the water. You come around uh, up there, uh, Troas and Antioch. You come down here uh, through Syria to Palestine, and here's Jerusalem in the Dead Sea. You got it in your mind's eye. Now, Paul says in verse 20, I have been prevented from coming to you, Romans, because the gospel had not yet been completed. But now I am coming to you on my way to Spain because it is my ambition to preach the gospel where the name of Christ has never been named. And I have, here's the key phrase, I have fulfilled the gospel from Jerusalem as far as Illyricum. Now, Illyricum is a very hot spot today. Bombs are falling every day in Illyricum now. Okay? It's Albania. And it is Kosovar. That's, that region is Illyricum. Now, picture the scope of it. This man has been at work for maybe 20 years. Maybe 20 years. Picture the scope of the territory from Jerusalem at the Dead Sea up through Asia Minor called Turkey, all through Greece, and now up to the top of Italy. And he says, my job is finished. There are tens of thousands of unevangelized people in this region. Tens of thousands of unconverted people. So what does he do? He tells Timothy, you stay in Ephesus. I know your home is Lystra. So I am not opposed to what I call Timothy-type missions. You go to work in the church in Liberia. That's Timothy-type missions. They've got a church, thank you. It's been there a hundred years. You go to serve with Wycliffe in Cameroon and work in Yaoundé. Indirectly, you'll be working for 214 people groups, probably 190 of which do not have the Bible in their language. That's pretty close to frontiers. 
But Paul said, I'm not going to any of those places. I'm going to Spain. Nobody's ever spoken to the Spaniards in the history of the world about Jesus Christ. They've never heard of him in 53 A.D. And I'm going there via Romans, via Rome, and I want you to send me on the way, which means sending is good. He didn't say everybody in Rome was going with him. He wrote the book of Romans and says, send me, send me, send me. He didn't make them feel guilty because they weren't going. Everybody's not supposed to go. Don't hear any guilt from me this morning unless <laughs> God's on you in this issue and has been for years. And this is the defining moment in your life. And then if you resist, feel guilty. Thank God for guilt. The reason he could say, I'm finished, is because there must be in the history of the church, in every generation, a group of passionate people like Paul. Not everybody, but there has to be a group of what I call Pauline-type missionaries. Not Timothy-type, Pauline-type missionaries who say, as they look around Pittsburgh, America, Gaithersburg, Minneapolis... You know how many churches there are in the Twin Cities? Just Let's just say evangelical churches. Not mainline Protestant, not Catholic, but evangelical gospel preaching churches. You know how many there are in the greater metro area, two million people in the Twin Cities? Probably pushing 2,000. Maybe just 1,200, depending on how you define evangelical. More churches in the densely gospeled Twin Cities than there are North American missionaries to two billion Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists. You call this obedience? You call this the fulfillment of the Great Commission to which all of you should say, why are you there, John Piper? Which is no Small or easy question for the likes of C.J. Mahaney or Mark Altroga or me or any of you other pastors to answer. And I am in a crisis every missions conference in October as I stand up with some integrity and try to preach on missions. And my answer is this. And I will give an account to Almighty God. The only warrant I have to stay is if more are going because I am staying than if I went would go. That's the only warrant I have given the density of the church. Christian radio stations coming out of our ears. Christian bookstores coming out of our ears. Christian colleges coming out of our ears. Christian churches coming out of our ears. Christian books coming out of our ears. And I have a precious family, Greg and Laura Peterson. Now listen, you parents, but I've got kids. Greg and Laura Peterson are pushing 40 with seven children. And we put them on a plane two weeks ago to Jazak, Uzbekistan, with seven children where there are no toilets. No running water without very special efforts. These are my heroes. I live for these people. These are my heroes. 
sure it takes guts to go knock on doors at Cedar Riverside across the street. Those are also some of my heroes. But when you take seven little children to a place to help Oscar and Kathy with their five children. And one of your young people, 19 years old, says, can I go and help you with the transition with your kids? And the church raises the money just like that. And now Anna's on the plane with them so that the mom can manage seven kids for as long as it takes. This is life to me. Uzbekistan is gloriously open. Was shut down for 70 years under the iron hand of Stalinism and Marxism. That wicked, wicked system that slaughtered 60 million people while liberals in this country were defending it. And shut down the church of Jesus Christ. Ah, they thought so. Ah, they thought so. God brought it down in 1989. And I'll tell you, it's coming down in North Korea. It's coming down in China. It's coming down in Cuba. And it's coming down in all those little countries in Southeast Asia there that are left over from the Vietnam War. Trying to play communism when it's dead. Pray for those few remaining lands. Vietnam, North Korea, China, Cuba. Are there any others? Maybe one or two. God, bring it down. Just imagine if God released the Chinese. Hundred million mighty men and women of God there. Because God would not be defeated by the boxers or anybody else. When they closed the doors in 1948. Watch me, God says. Watch me work behind closed doors. Go ahead and hack young couples to pieces. And we will see how the church grows in that kind of blood in China. So, understand that missions is not geography. If they have moved to your city en masse as refugees and there's no church among them, missions is a hundred yards away from my church right now. Not because I define everything as missions. I don't buy it. Don't go out of here saying, well, we're all missionaries. Baloney. That only nullifies the great singular work that must be done. And I'm not minimizing evangelism where you are. I am not. I'm simply saying, if you define everybody as a missionary, you know what will happen? The whole church will become blind to about two billion unreachable people because nobody lives in their culture to evangelize them. You can't send your money to these people and say, let the indigenous people do it. There are no indigenous Christians. That whole concept that you read about in magazines today, that it's very, it's very economically unwise for us to send missionaries because it costs $70,000 to keep a family of 
nine on the mission field when you could send $500 to the evangelist in Uzbekistan to go do the villages and they could do it much more effectively because they know the culture. Do you buy that? You are blind if you buy that. You don't know the world if you buy that. The point is there are thousands of people groups, subcultures and languages that don't have any church. There's nobody to evangelize them to pay. I'd send all my money if that could be done. I'd live on the street if I could evangelize the world that way. Wake up. Read something. Read something about the world. Know the situation. Don't be swayed by naive notions. You know what they are? They stroke us in our ease and slake our conscience because we feel so bad after a message like this. Well, God can handle that. I've totally lost my place and I should probably just stop. Um, the la- Thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. I was, gonna, I was just going to relate that. To, uh, to missions. Thy will be done on earth the way the angels do it in heaven. Have you ever contemplated what you mean when you say, as in heaven? Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Who does the will of God in heaven? Well, the angels do it in heaven. Psalm 103.20 Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, his ministers that do his will. God is surrounded by beings who do his will perfectly every day. You know what? Nothing but the will of God is done in heaven. Nothing but the will of God is done in heaven. And do you know what else? It is done with an intensity that leaves nothing to be desired. And that's what you pray will be done in Uzbekistan. And America, sin sick, playing themselves to death. America, Father, let your name be hallowed among the nations. Let your kingdom come among the nations. Let your will be done the way the angels are doing it all over the world. Well... The job is not yet done. You'll have to take my word for it. If you haven't read any books on it, uh, I could compend to you some magazines and periodicals to keep yourself up on it or books to read. But uh, you can find those and you will if your heart if your heart is in this. I'll just close and try to bring us back full circle to where we began with worship, Bob. You have a high calling here, brother. Really high. Really high. I've written a book. Little, we call it the Green Book. It may prove in the history of my life to be the most important book I've ever written, and it's called Let the Nations Be Glad. I wish I could get every one of you to read it. The lead chapter has the first page in it. Everybody I've ever met who thanks me for this book says the first page is all I needed. So don't buy the book. Just go tear out the first page from somebody's book or get them to Xerox it. You have my permission right now, copyright, to... uh, Photocopy the first page and mail it to everybody you want. And the first line says, missions 
is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Someday, when God's purposes are finished, and all evil is banished out of the universe, and there is only God and only worship, there will be no more missions. It is a temporary This age, stopgap, absolutely necessary and glorious measure to bring all of God's sheep into the fold so that we will together do what we're going to do, I pray, right now, forever. Worship is the fuel and worship is the goal of missions. If PDI loves worship... Because they love God. CJ, you must, you must love world evangelization. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I pray that a new day will dawn on my church, my denomination, the mainline Presbyterian church, Methodist church. Episcopalian Church, the whole broad Pentecostal movement. I pray for doctrinal and spiritual reformation and awakening in the Catholic Church. And I pray for all the independent Bible churches. I pray for all the little tiny movements scattered around the world that don't have any name. They just want to be Christian. I pray for every movement of the Spirit and of Christ in the world that the vision for finishing the commission will be birthed afresh and that the promise this gospel Matthew 24 14 this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come I pray that that glorious certified God assured promise will grip every soul in PDI, every soul in my church, every pastor in this room, every young person ready to lay down his life for the cause so that we will worship as we ought and pursue worshipers. The eyes of the Lord rove to and fro throughout the world seeking those to worship him in spirit and in truth in every people group. Let's go. Let's go find them.